Welcome to The Weekly Checkup. Hi, I'm Dr. Bruce Feinberg. The Weekly Checkup began June 2011 as a weekly healthcare call-in talk show on WSB Radio in Atlanta. The show has been airing now for 12 years, two hours every Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m. Over 500 hours of content made up of the kinds of questions that people listening right now have on their minds, don't have a way to ask or just looking for that right opportunity. In the era of podcasts, it seems with all that content and all those great questions, maybe this is time to take it outside the one and done Sunday radio show and make some of the content available to a larger audience. And that's what this podcast will be doing. Before in 1980, somewhere in the range of around 5%, less than 5% of the U.S. population was deemed to be obese. Now, the determination of obesity is based on BMI, so body mass index. It's, it's not a perfect solution in terms of how we measure for things like obesity, and so it can be misleading in terms of for certain population, like for a bodybuilder, for people with very large muscle mass. But, but in general, it's, a, it's, it's not a bad indicator. And so when we make those measurements, they, they may be slightly flawed, but, but the fact that those rates of obesity have gone from 5% in the 80s to 10% in the 90s to 20% in the 2000s to 40% in the 2000, end of the 2000 teens, and in some cases above 50%, with a quarter of those people having severe morbid obesity, which puts them at very high risk of life-shortening disease processes, it is a real epidemic in this country. It, it, there is no simple biologic explanation. And, and so that's why there's been so much attention to behaviorally managing it. And how do we educate people? How do we, how do we provide more better quality foods to the population so they don't live in areas called food deserts? How do we, even do we do things from, as, as part of policy, like looking at taxing sugar drinks or you know, putting labels for calories on at all restaurants. So there've been a lot of different things that have been adapted trying to solve for the problem, but nothing was changing the trajectory, which was becoming very scary because what goes hand in hand with the obesity problem are disease states, and in particular type two diabetes, which has also been exponentially increasing. And so we don't want to end up with a country of very ill people and what that will do in terms of costs and all kinds of things, as well as the impact on length of life, quality of life. So it's a very complicated problem. And now, in just the last few years, it's been made clear that some new classes of drugs originally designed to treat diabetes with the possible additional benefit of not only helping to regulate the blood sugar, but, but also maybe an added benefit of some weight loss Apparently, as the next generation of these products called GLP-1 drugs, glucagon-like proteins, that this later generation is not just getting small amounts of weight loss, but double-digit weight loss, literally 20-plus percent weight reduction in as little as six months. And the question is to have such an effective, and because we have 10 years of data on them in the diabetic population, what appears to be a safe product in the diabetic population, if we have a safe and effective diet drug, is it going to be the solution for everyone who has struggled with their weight? And at what point 
is someone struggling with weight, struggling with a behavior problem in terms of the way they eat that should be managed behaviorally versus a disease state biologic problem that really requires a medical therapy. We begin our obesity discussion with some very provocative conspiracy theories on its origins and the beginnings of the obesity epidemic. Let's start by listening to my conversation with James. Hey, James. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. What's your question on this? My question is, the obesity that we are experiencing now, could it be that back in 1985 when R.J. Reynolds, the cigarette company, bought Nabisco and they uh, pioneered, uh, they used the same tactics that they used in keeping smokers smoking, they used those same principles in the food. And then a few years later, three years later, Philip Mars, another uh, big tobacco company, follows suit in buying food, getting into the food business. And ever since then, could it be that people started to gain weight and, uh, and start to get health problems, uh, start to grow at academic uh, levels? That's, that's my question. So it's, I think it's, it's an interesting thesis. Um... I'm going to struggle with it um, in that it's hard to be able to pinpoint um, a manufacturer or two manufacturers. There's so much direct to consumer advertising around food and there's been so much that, you know, significantly predates 1985. So it's an interesting point in time, but, you know, Le Choy, you know, Chinese food, you know, was in the 1950s. In fact, I remember it was the, LeChoy introduced the first Muppet character. It was a dragon uh, uh, puppet. And, and I was at a, actually at a puppet sh- um, museum and um, they had the film clips from the original, for anybody who's as old as I am, who might remember LeChoy makes Chinese food. Well, the next part of that lyric is taste American. So going back to <laughs> the 50s and the 60, early 60s, the trying to get Chinese food into the more into the American diet where you'd make it at home, um, you had to Americanize it. It couldn't be too foreign. It's very interesting from where we are today, where you know the 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 the, the Asian foods that we do consume tend to be more and more ethnic. So we Szechuan and Hunan, not the more the more bland Cantonese style. However, I don't want to get too far afield here. The point being is that um, the way way that direct-to-consumer advertising of foodstuffs is clearly part of the problem, but I, I think it's more complicated. I think it's clearly sedentary behavior. Um, we have shifted over the last four or five decades our workforce from much more active labor to much more sedentary labor in which you're sitting at a computer screen, um, handling a phone at a call center, um, working at a desk, and no longer you know, in a factory on a farm, you know, in an active labor role. And I think, so I think that there is the sedentary behavior is a big piece of it. Um, what I guess is my greater concern is is less about, you always want to know how it happened. As I said earlier, the most important thing in understanding disease is the patient's history. And I think to some degree from a public health, it's it's understanding the history. And so, you know, spot on, you know, let's look at some of the things that have happened and how they may have changed behavior. What I'm concerned about the most in terms of the behavior aspects may not just be the influencers who are trying to change that behavior, but I'm, I'm concerned about 
the way that we respond is that I need to lose 20 pounds for a big event, a reunion, a wedding, whatever it may be, time to take the pill. I That's the part that I'm really struggling with. And having medical therapy available that can be transformative for obese diabetics, um, for the small percentage of patients with morbid obesity. But I'm seeing the pill, certainly the manufacturers are looking for to gain a broad indication as a weight loss drug. And the question is, how is that then utilized, you know, by both patients and healthcare providers? And is anybody who wants to lose 20 pounds, you know, on a medical therapy? And then what do you do about that? Are you on it for life? Do you take it one week out of four? Do you three months out of 12? Is it, is it another form of yo-yo dieting just medically managed? And I, and that's the piece that I re- really concerns me that I'm struggling with. So I love the fact that you're looking at history and looking at, you know, a, a couple, what could be key elements in terms of, you know, manufacturers with a history, um, you know, possibly tackling another behavioral aspect of, of, of humans, but I, I'm, I'm less likely to think that's critical. Thank you. What we believe to be the causes of the obesity epidemic seem intrinsically linked with what we believe to be the solution to the obesity epidemic. Lewis speaks his mind in this next segment. And so we're going to talk to Louise in Forsyth. Hi, oh, Louise. It's actually, uh, hey, doctor, it's actually Lewis. Uh, oh, my, my bad, Lewis, my bad. Well, you, you, you know, right. It's a great, it's a great baritone like... for a woman. Thank you. I sound. I look like a, a young Tina Louise, though. But uh, what I was going to say was about the acceptance or even the promotion of obesity. We have certain stars out there today that are saying healthy at any weight. Now we don't want to disper- disparage people and their weight and their figures. But you know, as a man of science, having all that extra pounds and even being obese is really detrimental to our health numbers. And we're at a point now, and I would imagine for young doctors, they're afraid to even talk to their patients and say, hey, you're 270 pounds and you're five foot, and and you should be 110 pounds. I would imagine doctors today are afraid because they'll become haters or something like that. And there is many options out there to take, to to get into exercise, very low-priced fitness centers that are out there also. So I'm putting a little onus on the overweight or the chronically overweight people on themselves and uh, your opinions, or if I'm wrong, you tell me. All right. Well, I, I did want opinions and I, I, you know, I think that clearly the pushback has happened because there was a sense of shaming. Um, and you know, it's a, it's human behavior and kind of, you right. could call it the bully behavior. And that's, you know, shaming people for something that they would argue is out of their control. And that's where you're addressing how much is out of their control and how much is in their control. And I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to hurt people at all. I understand. No, no, I'm not saying you do. Right. I'm not saying you do. I'm saying, but that is the, that's what, what was at the crux of maybe the movement, which started to look at, you know, defining what's that I'm, I'm using terms like I'm just healthy, you know, I'm big boned and I, and, and they're not accurate. It's not healthy. And it's not the bones that are bigger. It's carrying more right. body fat and more body weight. And so I don't disagree with you. I don't think, I don't know, I should say, because I don't know okay. the the lack of willingness of healthcare providers to address this because it is literally the number one public health issue in America. 
the epidemic okay. of obesity. There has been a tremendous amount of emphasis on trying to manage it. The problem has been most of the management techniques have been around behavioral. And there is that question, why has that not been effective? And it, and it does bring up something really interesting about the new drug therapies, because what, what we're hearing in the dialogue and we're hearing it both in the in the lay literature, and you may have seen some of this when you read the articles in the paper or whatever, but we're also seeing it in the medical literature that the fact that the drugs work and take individuals who have had longstanding intractable obesity and have been on, you right. know, lifelong yo-yo dieters and have failed, right. and now they're on a medical therapy and worked, and they've lost 20% of their body weight in six months. Okay. And, and so what it's doing is it's saying that it's saying that, ah, you see, it is a biologic condition. And now that there is a treatment for it, um, made well. But, and I, and I think that there is a piece of that. And, and the question okay. is where, where does that stand, right? Is every, is, is every guy who's carrying 20 pounds too much weight, is his problem behavioral or is problem that he has a disease state? And I, and I think that you bring up what is kind of going to be a critical issue. When do you define this is about a behavioral problem that you need to own up to and work to, to fix versus this probably is a disease state that, you know, you mm -hmm. carry some genetic predisposition and sure, it's, you've I had agree. it in your family and for you, the drugs are the better answer. So I, I'm not, I am not disagreeing with you. I'm trying to figure out. Right. And that's part of why I wanted to bring it up. And I wanted calls like yours because uh, how do we, how do we address this and talk about this? It can't be everybody, you know, I think about somebody my age, you know, I'm a guy in the sixties and, you know, is every guy in the sixties who's got a you know a kid who's getting married, or in every oh, you know every couple, they're they're going on couples weight loss for three months before you know on medical therapy, uh, right? right? Instead of like hitting the gym for the three months before and going on right. you know a Mediterranean diet, they're doing it right. you know the other way, and and I don't know what the answer is. I think that's that for me is it can't when you look at the rates and I mentioned that early in the show, you look at the rise in obesity literally since 1980 for decades it was five percent of the population would meet the, the the definition of obesity and literally right. that number has been doubling every decade and now we've got over 40 percent approaching 50 percent wow. of the u.s population obese so it, it's unlikely that a disease state just emerged over the last right. few decades to create this i i think that we've got to find and then figure out how as healthcare providers how do we direct patients accordingly you know and, you know, and we've done this in other areas. I mean, we've done it where, you know, it was easy just to do an arthroscopy in the knee. And finally, the doctor right. started saying, you know, we don't need to do surgery in everybody and you need you know, to do rehab. Right. And I know you want the instant fix, but in the long right. term, the rehab may be the better bet. So it's not, it's not something that we haven't gone through in the past in other areas where we went all medical and then we started to think right. more behavioral. But but I'm with, I am not, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not against your comments at all. I just want to right. put them in the perspective that we've got to figure right. out as a society, as right. the individuals who are, su who suffer with the problem and not feeling victimized as the healthcare providers. So we don't end up over prescribing. We, right. it's also new right now. And I think we need perspective. Do we know what's going to happen down the line with this new drug? What was it, Fen-Fen? People were using 20, 30 years ago, and then we you discovered got, yeah. there was a problem. So, so do so we, we know? So we, we have now a decade of experience with this with the class of drugs being used for um, diabetic patients, many okay. of whom did have 
weight loss associated with it. And if you think about those diabetic commercials, you know, they end, yeah, you know, it's always correct, like, and sure. you may lose some weight. And, right. and that's how it was seen as kind of a, a, a you know, a, not only was it very beneficial in helping them manage their diabetes, but the, you know, there's right. a plus, you may actually lose a little weight. It wasn't of, I'm going to take this medicine, I'm going to drop 20%, you know, of my weight in right. the next six months. So I, we, we have 10 year data that, but I think again, we, it wasn't being used in the same population. So is that diabetic patient's physiology altered by the disease state? And will that, will that 10 year safety profile be the same in a population where they don't have that same disease physiology? I, I don't think we know. I think there are a lot of questions. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for more restraint, right? You know, and I, I and and I can tell you that I I I almost can't count the number of people I know <laughs> who are getting prescribed. Asking, yeah. Really, it is. It, it's you it's know, scary. The, the guy also, James. I, I was a, that was a brilliant point. I liked his point about the tobacco uh, buying up all these food groups. There's more access, cheaper total amount of food now that you can get and it's so easy to get and it's anytime your mood is a little down boom you get it it's that's a problem too i think so and you've got you know, to and again really this, this is where i think it's about where the onus is you know do we have to become uh -huh. better educated consumers so we went through the snack wells era where fat is bad but we weren't paying right. attention to the increased carbs and the calories uh -huh. and uh -huh. and now we're kind of backing away from that but at some point we need to be educated consumers and we can't allow ourselves to be manipulated, you know, by, by the, you know, every direct to consumer marketing campaign about whatever it may be. And, and I think that we have, I don't know whether it's a gullibility or, you know, again, it, it's that, you know, we, we want the best of everything. From a public health perspective, it will be critical to fully understand the obesity epidemics origin in order to move from a treatment strategy to a prevention strategy. Until such time, safe and effective treatment will be transformative, particularly in the type 2 diabetes population. We'll gather some insights from the call with Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you? I am doing all right today. Oh, I don't like that. But it's, at least you're having a good day on Mother's Day. That's good. Yes. All right, yes. what can I do for you? All three of my babies have contacted me. Oh, all, all four of mine have called my wife, so that's, we're good. Uh, nobody, nobody I have to go chasing after. Right. <laughs> yes. I'm type 2 diabetic. Yeah. And I just got on Monjero. I'm on insulin. Yeah. But now that I've got on Monjero... There are, this isn't good for you. If you're type 2 diabetic, you're insulin resistant. So why are you giving yourself insulin? And the medicine keeps you from feeling or wanting to eat. My main thing is, am I kicking myself two, three times over if I just learn what to eat? and get off the medicine by myself. Yeah, I mean, it'd be, it'd be great if everybody could just heal themselves, you know, do all the right things and make it happen. Um, it's just, unfortunately, that, that, that there's not a good history of that success. So when you, when you were recommended Manjiro, it's being recommended by 
an endocrinologist, a primary care doctor? Who's making the recommendation and prescribing it? I only go to my primary right now. I haven't okay. found the endo doctor. Okay. And 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 when you did you have any of this conversation? You know that I'm a little nervous about the med, and you know, is how much of this can I do on my own? Was there a conversation with the doc, or you just kind of said, "Great, thank you," and now you're thinking about it and you're having second thoughts? I went in saying I've got to get something done, and then it's, "What are you doing? What can we do? Let's get a plan." So she's prescribed the Gletro, I think, and Fonjero. And I went back on my metformin. And then right. I got to go tomorrow to get some labs drawn so we can th start my process to check up on me in three months for my right. A1C because yep. it's at a 12.6. Right. So um, you're, 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 where, where to start here? Because most of this is around a new drug, Manjaro. It's a breakthrough drug. The breakthroughs in diabetes management have been happening pretty fast and furious recently, and they really begin kind of within the last 10 years where the focus had been about the insulin pathway and how to manage the insulin pathway in the body. There's two types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. In type 1, the problem is not making enough insulin, and in type 2, there is the resistance to the insulin that's made. Essentially, insulin is a chemical which has to bind has to somehow connect to the cell like a lock, like a key turns a lock in order to get that cell to utilize sugar correctly. And if the cell is not allowing if the insulin key into the lock, there get to be problems. And so for type 2 diabetics, it's this problem of insulin resistance, which they try to manage by consuming fewer carbohydrates, so there's less need for insulin. But at some point, they often need to take insulin, extra insulin, to overcome the, the, this resistance problem. And often they can take a lot amount. It can be a lot of insulin that they can take at certain times of the day. There are new class of drugs that started coming out, as I said, about 10 years ago that have really revolutionized the care of the type 2 diabetic. One of them, the most recent in the arsenal, is Manjaro. And that's what Melissa was just prescribed. So Melissa, let me get to the bottom of the story with you and to bring the new listeners in on this. So Melissa's been struggling with type 2 diabetes. She's recently been recommended new medication, a relatively new drug that you might have just recently started seeing advertised on TV, Monjaro, M-O-U-N-J-A-R-O. And it's a very interesting drug. So I was telling Melissa that the, the breakthrough happened uh, almost a decade ago, where the focus has always been on insulin. In type 1 diabetes, the body's not making enough insulin, and in type 2 diabetes, the insulin that's there just isn't working well. And it seems that the cells that the insulin is supposed to impact upon to get them to use sugar, uh, the insulin doesn't isn't getting to do its job. Those cells are resistant to the insulin. And so they're reduced carbohydrates. So you don't need as much insulin because you're eating less of sugars that insulin is helping the cells to use. And, and then drug therapy. But in many of those patients, if drugs are not helping, they have to take extra amounts of insulin, kind of give extra insulin to do the job that the insulin that they are should be doing. And that's where she was. She was on meds and she was using extra insulin as needed. And then this new medication was recommended. And the new medication is only recommended for type 2 diabetics. 
And it takes advantage of a new way of thinking that, as I said, began about a decade ago where we, we've been focusing on insulin and not the other hormones that are all part of energy regulation. And researchers started looking at this other side of insulin. Insulin helps to use the sugar, but there's another axis called glucagon, which helps to make sugar when your body needs sugar, but doesn't have any available. And so that's what converts proteins and fats into sugar, what's called gluconeogenesis. You don't need the technical stuff, but just to get it out there. And that's the glucagon pathway. And so a new set of drugs like Ozempic and Rebelsis that you see advertised were taking advantage of the fact that this glucagon-like peptide, which is secreted in your gut, it does so to try to take away your appetite. You got enough sugar in your system. And because there's enough sugar in your system, it's also going to stimulate more insulin to be made. So rather than you having to take an insulin shot, it's getting your body to get some more insulin out into the circulation. And at the same time, it's stopping you from eating more by taking away your appetite. And so these drugs were effective. They were helping diabetics. They were also helping them lose weight. The newest drug, Mongero, adds another drug to this glucagon-like peptide. And it's a drug which helps to mimic insulin effect activity. And so you're not only getting more insulin made from the glucagon-like peptide, but you're making that insulin more effective where it has to work because of the GIP. And that combination is also appear to be very effective in type 2 diabetics. And it even seems to induce more weight loss. And so it's being really jumped on by the weight loss community. It's got side effects. People can get nauseated, not just like not wanting to eat, but actually a little sick to their stomach. And it can be really tough to administer for somebody who is simultaneously using insulin because all these manipulations to your insulin pathway inside your body can make that extra insulin you're giving through a shot suddenly behave in ways that it wasn't behaving before. And so, Melissa, that was your question about you're on insulin. Now, did your doctor talk to you about using less insulin when you take insulin now that you're going to be starting the Mongero? No, she told me to keep doing what I'm doing until three months. And, yeah, and, and so that, that's it. my only concern. And, and, and this is where I, I have no knock and we had an earlier call and it's not like it's not like everybody needs a second opinion it's not like everybody needs to go see a specialist but you're getting to be you're getting to be a little more complicated now so one of the things if you read the package insert and i tell all patients when you get your medication it comes with that little fold up piece of paper that's got like i don't know thousands of words written in really tiny print <laughs> it's not a bad idea to know the medicines that you're taking. And one of the things it does say in the fine print with Manjaro is you might want to lower that dose of insulin that you give yourself because it may act a lot more strongly than it has in the past once you're on the medication. It is the okay. kind of question that I would suggest you ask your doctor about. And it's, it's really, you know, when you can have that in front of you, I'm reading the information about the drug when I picked up the prescription and it says on there right here, in this fine print, you know, and should I be doing that? Um, so just some things to be, it's a very, very good drug. It's been extensively tested. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not challenging the course of direction that, you know, that is given to you. I just want to make you aware of some of the subtleties and it's often very hard when you start new things to remember everything the doc says. And you're often, 
you know, blindsided by the new stuff and a little bit in shock and you don't always ask as many questions as you should. And that's not on you. It's not on the patient. It's always on the doc to make sure that the patient fully understands. This one is worth a call to have that conversation again. Mm -hmm. I wear a Dexcom, so I've seen my numbers as I eat and drink stuff. Um, I was taking maybe 15 to 20 units, but I just only took 10 just because when it falls, I don't want it to go too low because then I'm weak and, you know, miserable. So I did cut back a little based on my need um, since I can see the numbers. So So that really helps. Go ahead. I go for labs tomorrow. Are there ones that I can ask them to take that they will look to see about my my sales being able to receive everything that I need? No, not specifically. Not not in the way okay. that you're thinking and asking the question. So okay. the focus is there, there's there's the two issues. There, the long term issue is the hemoglobin A one C. Hemoglobin is a, is a main protein inside your red blood cell. Sugar is we think about sugar. It's sticky. It sticks to things. When you have too much sugar, it sticks to other chemicals in your body. When it sticks to hemoglobin, that is what makes hemoglobin A one C that we measure, and it's a long term measurement. It tells us over a period of time how much sugar is in the circulation. And if that number is above 6.4, 6.5, some will just say above seven, but when it gets higher than a certain level, you know, which is typically the case in a diabetic, the goal is to try to use that as the gauge. Are you controlling tight enough, tight enough control, always making sure that you're in range. And so that that's the story behind A1C. Beyond that, The other testing is really to make sure that new medicines are not upsetting the liver, upsetting the kidneys. They're not throwing off the balance of the ions in your blood, like sodium and potassium and magnesium. And those are the things that are being looked at. So not really this like kind of, you know, big picture, are my cells doing fine? It's really about how all these different chemicals in your body are responding to these changes in in, in their environment because of these new chemicals introduced. And whatever labs they do tomorrow, they'll be able to see those? They're, they're all going to be likely that. They're going to be looking at liver function, kidney function, the, the, the again, this, this electrolyte or the ions in your blood. That's g- generally what's going to be looked at. Wonderful. Um, beyond that, there might be thyroid because there's some other things that often happen with type 2 diabetics that can be affected with medicine changes. But yes, that's most of it. Wonderful. Okay. All right, Melissa, Thank thanks for the question. You know, so many of our listeners are struggling with what you're struggling with and maybe mm-hmm. just not comfortable enough to call and ask. So I'm thrilled that you did. And there'll be a lot more conversations about Manjaro because I do think that it's being, it, there is there is not currently an indication for, for weight loss outside of the diabetic type twos who need it for their disease and benefit with additional weight, with weight loss. But taking it as a weight loss drug, I think is problematic and and it creates problems because Drugs like that can get into short supply for the patients who have a disease for whom it is critical it. because of people who you know, are wanting it for weight loss. Tirzepatide, the generic drug name for the diabetic branded drug Munjaro, was also approved for the treatment of obesity following this show under the branded name Zepbound in November of 2023. This rapidly expanding new class of drugs based on the recently discovered understanding of the complex chemistry of the body's management of fuel 
is transforming the treatment of type 2 diabetes and obesity in ways that were unimaginable a decade ago. As these drugs help solve devastating health problems, they introduce new health concerns, ethical, philosophical, financial, behavioral. It's projected that 15 million prescriptions for these drugs will be written this month. And that's a drop-the-mic statement, if I ever heard one. The Weekly Checkup airs Sundays, live, 3 to 5 p.m. on WSB Radio Atlanta. The show is produced by Lens. The show's director is Michael Colleen. Our engineer is Andrew Longoria. Music is provided by Michael Feinberg and Fresh Sound Records, featuring tracks from his 2021 release, Hard Times. All content is created and developed by Dr. Bruce Feinberg. You've been listening to The Weekly Checkup. I'm Dr. Bruce Feinberg. Be well. Thank you.